0: Ben here, uh, beginning our study through the book of Amos, the third of the minor prophets. Although uh, it may be, as we talked about with Joel, one of the earlier books, uh, it's definitely before Hosea. And since we don't know where Joel's at, uh, some people, some scholars say this is on a timeline, potentially the earliest of the minor prophets. As we look through uh, just the word of God that comes through Amos. Uh, we're going to see some specific calling out of sins of injustice against those who are already oppressed people groups, uh, as well as a lot of talk of empty religion. Uh, those, those two major things are going to be uh, woven throughout the book. And so we see, uh, as this word opens, it says, The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, right from there, we see Amos is not uh, someone of high status. Uh, He is among the shepherds. Uh, Remembering that the people at this time, the, the shepherds would have been sort of the rejects. They were out in the field with the animals, and they would not have been well respected. So the fact that God is giving his word through a shepherd. And an important word, as we're about to find out, uh, is, is pretty impressive and reminds us that God can use anybody in any, any part of life, any situation that they might be in. Anyone can be used by God uh, for his glory and for our good. Because in verse 2 he says, And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. So the Lord is roaring through Amos. These words are important uh, and potentially scary. Uh, We see that the response from nature, just in this little imagery here, that the shepherds are mourning because the pastures are being uh, affected by this, and the top of Carmel withers, Mount Carmel uh, being the place uh, in the Old Testament, where Elijah and the Baal worshippers fought over who was the true God. Uh, so if there's that much of a response physically from the world, then let's see as we go on what terrifying power there is in God's word for the different uh, people that his message is for. So picking it up in verse 3. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden, the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. So, opening, this is a statement against the people of Damascus. And uh, the sin that they have been doing is as they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. This is a picture of uh, their attacking of this city of Gilead, which is uh, a part of the nation of Israel, actually. But the people of Damascus are attacking it and attacking it brutally, Sledges of iron, right? This is not just uh, a normal type of fight, but the idea of, of threshing, of, of taking... Uh, the, the sickle to the harvest, but this is not a place that's supposed to be harvested. This is not a crop. It's talking about an attack against the people. And the result of that is fire and the devouring of the stronghold, right? There's going to be a brokenness and a destruction of the people of Damascus coming from God. So we'll see. There's several sets of people that are listed out through the rest of the next couple chapters. So we've had the people of Damascus. Now, In verse 6, the same set up, thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Gaza, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. So once again, we see in here, an exiling of people being delivered to Edom. While it is not specific to who it is, the idea is that this is likely Israelites again, being oppressed, being attacked by the people of Gaza. And once again, we see the response of God is fire and a cutting off of the inhabitants. Uh, The mention of some of these different cities are uh, the cities of religion for the worship of some different false gods. Uh, and again, we see uh, the, the mention of the Philistines as ancient uh, people group that the people of Israel had been dealing with uh, for a long time. Right? We see that remnant of them shall perish. So we know that God is is working towards fulfilling His promise of of having the nation of Israel be a place that is purely a place for God's people, and that there is no remnant of those who are opposing God. Now the next group of people, the next city, thus says the Lord, verse 9, For the three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. So a very similar sin to uh, what was described Uh, previously, but now instead of just delivering up the people to Edom, it's not just any people, but there's a covenant of brotherhood that is being ignored. So the idea is that there is uh, a deception here that uh, goes beyond just being aggressive towards the people we don't like, but this was a people who they were supposed to uh, have a connection to that they decided instead to deliver to an enemy. So not a good thing. None of these Situations are are good things by any means. Continuing on, the next people, thus thus says the Lord in verse 11, For three transgressions of Edom, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Timan, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. So, This progression of things that is happening is going from bad to worse to even worse. Uh, We see this. He pursued his brother with the sword. And not just that, but he cast off all pity. He kept his wrath forever. His anger tore perpetually. This is a devastatingly bad attack. This is uh, just inappropriate and beyond what should be uh, done in the context of a wartime situation. And next, the next group finishing out chapter 1, verse 13 thus says the Lord for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border so I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind and their king shall go into exile he and his princes together says the Lord so now we've gone on just from killing uh, men, killing soldiers, killing people, to killing pregnant women, right? This is a, a picture of genocide with the a purpose that the Ammonites are trying to enlarge their border. They're trying to uh, take over territories that uh, are not theirs. Again, as the progression of this goes on, uh, we can see uh, this this thread of... of cause and effect almost where one person does something and then the next people group does something even worse and the next people group does something even worse. Uh, because we'll see the connection here going into the beginning of chapter two, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send fire upon Moab and it shall devour the strongholds of Cariah. And Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. So now we see a desecration of the bodies of the royalty of the people of Edom. Edom was in judgment just uh, a few verses prior because of what they did. But that doesn't give Moab the excuse to then treat the Edomites like they aren't people. Again, we'll see this, this theme of how we treat others. Uh, as a, as something that Amos, the God through Amos, is going to continually bring up. And so this progression all the way through chapter 2, verse 3, uh, just shows um, a really bad situation for the Israelites to be around. All these nations around them are doing these bad things, some of it to them, some of it to each other. And so for the original hearers, as they would listen to this, they would go, yeah, God's sending the fire, he's judging them, he's... He's destroying them. He's doing all these things. Great. And then in chapter 2, verse 4, we have this. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. The contrast between the people of Judah and, as we'll see in a bit, the people of Israel versus those other people groups. The sin that's called out here is the rejection of the law of the Lord and not following his statutes. And their punishment is the same as those of these egregious crimes that have been listed up to this point. This would have fell very darkly on the ears of the original listeners to realize, okay, we have really gotten off track. If these, if this is what these really horrible things happen, how horrible is it that we have then lost our connection with God? And God doesn't just stop with the nation of Judah, but he goes on to give a more thorough judgment on the nation of Israel, which ends up being a focus for the rest of the book. In verse 6 it says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go to the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge and in the house of their God. They drink the wine of those who have been fined. So this is a more specific calling out, not just saying you've rejected my law, you're not following my statutes, but now we see some really specific pictures of what the nation of Israel is doing. So if we go back to verse 6, they sell the righteous for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. Uh, they, are, they are selling their own brothers and sisters into slavery because they don't have uh, the right things, right? And the poor people... Are, are being oppressed, according to verse 7. Uh, we also see sexual sins of of a man and his son um, being with the same woman, right? Which is uh, uh, the sexual sins listed out in Deuteronomy as, as things that profane the holiness of God. This should not be a surprise, and this should not be happening. Um, the garments taken in pledge in verse 8 is the idea that people are... Uh, not returning and not fulfilling the debts that they owe, but instead taking on something that is and holding on to that debt and then using it uh, in a place of worship. And finally in that verse, in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. These fines likely are uh, illegal fines, fines that are beyond what are supposed to be done, and they're being paid for it. Instead of in money, they say, well, if you can't pay for it, they're... Just give me your wine. And then they're drinking that wine in the house of God. So this is just a small glimpse of how far off the people of Israel have gotten. And so God then reminds them who he is and and reminds them of where their place is because of God. Verse 9. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you forty years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? So God's reminding them, you didn't get to where you are right now on your own power. I set this all up, and it's by following me and relying on my power that you continue to be successful." But we see they don't do that. Verse 12, "...but you made the Nazarites drink wine, and commanded the prophets, saying, you shall not prophesy." Essentially, don't do what God tells us, right? The Nazarites were uh, a people that were set apart to God, and they were given really specific instructions, one of them being that they not drink any alcohol, uh, among other things. They don't cut their hair, uh, etc. And so they're, they're going against what God has told them, but also they don't want to hear from God, right? The prophets shall not prophesy. They don't want to hear God's word. That's how, uh, just, how far they've fallen away from even considering that God is worth their time. And so what is God's response to that? The rest of chapter 2 tells us in verse 13, Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. So essentially, God is saying, You think you're powerful, you think you know better, you think you've earned and done all of this stuff on your own. I'm about to show you that. I can take it all away. All those pictures in here of of being fast or or relying on a horse or uh, just being generally a a strong-willed person, all of it is meaningless in the sight of the power of God. And so, as chapter three jumps in, we see uh, a revealing of more specifically what God is going to do to the Israelites and how they should should have been viewing him up to this point and what they've gotten lost on. So chapter 3 opens with a phrase we'll see several times in this book. Hear this word, that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So again, he's reminding them, I brought you out of Egypt. I called you. You're only special because I called you. And while you do get uh, benefits from that, you also have a responsibility in that covenant relationship. And then we see a series of rhetorical questions. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to met? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall into a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? Essentially what he's saying is, you understand cause and effect in the real world. It's true in the spiritual realm as well. And when God says he's going to do something, it's going to happen. You can expect this destruction that's to happen. Continuing on in verse 9, proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt, and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. That is uh, just a picture of. Again, the heart issue here. They do not know how to do right, and instead of storing up uh, blessings and and the things of God, they're storing up violence and robbery. Continuing, verse 11. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. And he goes on to say, to describe how bad it will be, thus says the Lord, Verse 12, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. This is still hearkening back to God's uh, ultimate promise that the people will not be completely destroyed. But the way that's being described here poetically is the idea that uh, a sheep that only has a couple, the, the remains of the sheep being a couple legs or a piece of an ear, that the people will leave. Uh, uh, be rescued, but they will have nothing, right? A corner of a couch, a part of a bed, they will have nothing uh, except the the very, not even the minimum amount to live, but just the, the destruction of, of all of their physical goods. And so chapter three ends with this. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Bethel, remember, is the uh, point of worship for Israel, uh, but at this point they have set up golden calves inside of it. Uh, And if you remember back all the way to the beginning of chapter 1, God is roaring out from Jerusalem, from Zion, the true place of worship. And so the end of this uh, picture here in chapter three is the idea that the false religion will be brought down and it will be shown to be false because God is too powerful for it. Uh, and so as we just consider uh, the, the continuing judgment to come that we'll study in the next few chapters, uh, we need to check our own hearts and make sure that we are not um, worshiping God emptily or worshiping something that isn't God that we haven't realized. Uh, and, and have gotten off track, maybe we've we've worshipped the idea of Sunday morning, uh, or we've worshipped the idea of um, uh, uh, a Bible reading plan that allows us to to check off boxes and we feel good that those boxes get checked off, but we don't actually use the Word of God to uh, transform our hearts. And so um, let us not stand with uh, the people of Israel who think they're better than everyone and look at the sins of others and go. Well, I'm not them, I'm not that bad, but let us really reflect inward on our own hearts and see where are those places that are dark? Where are those places that are empty for God? And and how can I turn those places back around